Well, this morning's message is all about ancestry. Ancestry. Human beings, it seems, are very interested in that subject, interested in researching where they come from. And I know that's true because Ancestry.com, the, the sort of digital family history service, was bought out just this last year, forget this, $4.7 billion, billion with a B. That service has over 3.5 million subscribers spread across 30 countries in the world. It's a huge business. Years ago, Tandy and I, we signed up for it, and we really enjoyed getting the results and finding out where we come from. Most of all, when Tandy and I talk about our spiritual heritage, what we love are those old black and white family portraits. You know the ones that I'm talking about? where you get, a, get to look at what your ancestors, even if you've never met them, you get to look at what they look like. In fact, some of you have been in my home office and you've seen on my wall, I've got this, this big you know, thing on the wall that, that has three generations of my ancestors on it. My grandfathers, my great-grandfathers, and my great-great-great-great-grandfathers, the Noes and the McCords and the Logans and the, what's the last one? The Deans which is my middle name, I should know that, and the deans. And it's so interesting to look at these pictures and to see a number of things, body types and, and facial features, and seeing how they get passed down through generational lines. Ancestry clearly affects us. And that's very true when it comes to spiritual matters as well. That's our focus of our time today. It is one thing to say, look, here's my earthly father, and here's how I'm like him. It's a whole other thing to say, there's God, and he's my father in the truest sense, and these are the ways that I am like him. Like father, like son, as they say, right? Or like father, like daughter. Sons of God. Listen to all the language we have in Scripture. Sons of God, daughters of God, together children of God, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, who in a sense is our older brother. And I know that sounds very weird, but it's true. He says it himself. Yes, he is our, our Savior and Lord and God in the flesh, but Hebrews 2.11 says that he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. That is amazing. So there's a really good reason why here at Oak Hill we talk about family all the time. We constantly beat that drum. It is not just empty verbiage. Folks, I want you to know that. It is biblical truth. The relationships that we have with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, and the relationships that we enjoy with one another here in the church, those things are far greater and more important than the relationships we have with our physical blood relatives. And that is true everywhere, by the way. That is true across the globe. We are spiritual siblings with Christians from every race, every tribe, every tongue across the entire world. The beauty of our common faith transcends all of those differences that we see in people across the world who trust in Christ. And the most important of those relationships is right here in the local church where we live life together. And we say that ad nauseum too, don't we? You hear these phrases all the time, church family, living life together. Again, for us, as we look at Scripture, that is not just a catchphrase. It's not just a branding thing that we're doing here. It is a key statement of priority, priority that's related to our truest family relationships. And the reality is, is in the church today, most Christians don't get that. Most Christians or churchgoers today will insist, well, church is a part of my life. It's like a slice of my life that's over here, but they won't see it as the, the very hub of their life because of these family relationships that we have. 
And we all need to grow in that so we understand that that's the way the church is designed to be, to have these relationships, both vertical and horizontal, flourish in our lives. So today's text is about ancestry, and in particular, it's about paternity. Now, we don't hear that word a lot. We hear maternity a lot, but paternity. We all have a cosmic spiritual father. Who's yours? Who is your spiritual father? Would it surprise you to hear that Jesus himself, the very son of God, says there's only two choices when it comes to spiritual paternity? It's interesting, the timing of this passage is Adam and I just a week ago or 10 days ago now at the underground, we talked about the mark of the beast. And functionally, the mark of the beast is a statement of loyalty. It's a statement of loyalty. Put the name of your father on your forehead or on your right hand so that everybody can see who you stand with. Whose team are you on? Well, guess what? Every human being born into this world carries within himself or herself not a visible mark, but a very real mark that shows everybody, everybody, who our spiritual father really is. It shows up in our sin when we lie, when we cheat, when we steal, when we hurt other people, when we live selfishly and worse. Everyone who's born into this world has the mark of a spiritual father. Paul spoke about it in Ephesians chapter 2. He wrote this, And you were, Christians, were dead in your trespasses and sins, that's what you once were, in which you formerly walked according to what? The course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That was true of every one of us. John also talks about it in his first letter. Very simply, he says, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the passage we're studying this morning ought to cause you and I, as we're listening to this, to ask and answer these all-important questions. Who is my spiritual father? And what are the signs in my life that I'm like him? Who is my spiritual father? And what are the signs in my life that would be evidence that show that I am like him? All right. Grab your Bibles if you haven't done so already. Let's go to John chapter 8. For a number of weeks now, we have been standing in the temple courts, metaphorically. We put ourselves in the temple courts listening to this back-and-forth dialogue. You might want to call it an argument or a debate, whatever, but a back-and-forth discussion between Jesus and the, this Jewish crowd of which part are the religious authorities there in the temple. This scene goes way back to chapter 7, doesn't it? Way back to chapter 7, verse 14, and it goes all the way through this entire chapter, chapter 8, this same scene. So if you're like, boy, it seems like we've been in this for a long time, we have. <laughs> it's just a long scene, and there's a lot of really important stuff here. By the way, programming note on this, we're going to be wrapping up chapter 8 over the next two Sundays, and then, get this now, be taking a break in John's gospel for the rest of the year. I know, right? Did you know the holidays? I mean, the holidays are creeping up on us. Do you, do you notice the fall colors on the screen, right? My wife is so happy. Okay, the holidays are creeping up. So we're coming into Reformation season. And we've got some special surprises for you for Reformation. Then comes Thanksgiving. Then comes our Advent season. So two more Sundays in John 8. We'll wrap up that chapter, then we'll stop, and then we'll dive into some other things. And listen, there's plans are happening, and I'm super excited about where we're headed over the next couple of months. All right, let's back up to verse 31. You're in John 8 now? Good. 
Back up to verse 31. Let's start. These are the verses we read last week, but let's catch the flow of the argument here. Verse 31, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, remember, it says at the end of verse 30 that in the middle of this ongoing debate, some believed in him. And we looked at what that word believed meant last week. He's saying to those Jews who believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they answered him, we're Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They challenged him with that question. Verse 34, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So these folks are trusting in their Jewish lineage to have a right standing before God. Abraham's descendants, they say it over and over again. They assume based on that birthright that they are spiritually free, but Jesus says, no, no. No, no, you are actually slaves. You are slaves to sin. So you can be ethnically this or ethnically that, whatever you want, but it's not going to change the fact that you all fall short of the glory of God. You all have sin in your life, and you will answer for that. And so the only way they could become spiritually free is if the Son of God sets them free, and if they continue, it says, in His Word or abide in His Word and become true disciples. That's what we learned last week. Now, On to today's passage. Now Jesus is about to deal with their Abrahamic claim by looking at their lives, at their deeds. Verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, he says. Yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. Look, last week we talked about this, this conversation is getting heated, isn't it? It's, it's getting hostile, and Jesus is about to really ramp it up. Whatever, if last week was at a six, we're up to nine and a half here. Your father, he says. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. Hmm. They said to him, we're not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. Here we go. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? And then he answers his own question, verse 47. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them, because you are not of God. Shots fired, right? This is a serious thing. So let's go back to this claim of Abrahamic origin. Verse 37, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, Jesus says. He doesn't dispute their physical lineage. Jesus knows that these men are physically descendants of Abraham, but that is not the important issue in his eyes. 
And this is just a quick aside on this. That mindset should be ours as Christians as well. A person's ethnicity or race or lineage, while it is a part of who they are and we can, we can observe it and we can celebrate it, I like to celebrate the fact that I'm Irish on my mother's side. We, all of that's great, but to us as Christians, race or ethnicity should be one of the least important things that we see in other people. One of the least important things. What matters most is spiritual. Who is your father? That's the key issue, right? That's what Jesus is getting at here. And by the way, that's why racism is never acceptable among God's people. Never acceptable. Not even for a moment, because spiritual matters far outweigh what we see on the outside. We need to make sure we understand that. But even in the Old Testament, and this was a massive blind spot for these Jews, even in the Old Testament, physical or ethnic descent from Abraham was not sufficient to put them in the line of the promised seed. Just having the right bloodline did not make them true heirs of Abraham. It's always been spiritual. So things didn't change from Old to New Testament. It's always been a spiritual issue, not a physical one. In fact, Paul makes this point in Romans chapter 2. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly or physically. That's not how you define a Jew by what's on the outside. Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit and not by the letter, not by the letter of the law. It's an internal issue. Yet look at verse 39 in our text. When Jesus questions their spiritual paternity, the Jews double down, right? They stand firm on this basis that they have, which is a false basis, for their confidence. Abraham is our father. And even after Jesus points out that their deeds are not in line with Abraham's deeds, they still shoot back in verse 41, verse 41, getting ahead of myself, they say, well, at least we're not born out of fornication. We have one father and that's God. Now, we saw this a couple weeks ago. That is possibly another backhanded slap at Jesus, right? At his origins. Once again, they're trying to make him look bad in front of this crowd. If they can, if they can like cut the legs out from under him in terms of his credibility in front of their fellow Jews, then that works in their favor. So they're potentially suggesting here that according to the rumors that are flowing, flowing around, that Jesus was conceived out of wedlock, right? That he's born out of fornication. By the way, there's so many rumors flying around that we're going to find out next week that some of the Jews in this crowd not only think he's born of fornication, they don't even believe that his father was a Jew and that he possibly he's a Samaritan and has a demon. That's all. I mean, they literally accuse the Son of God of having a demon next week. So there's all these theories floating around about where Jesus comes from, but the larger point they're making here is this. They're saying, we're not anything like your mother who was a dirty sinner, We're not anything like those pagan Gentiles or those half-breed Samaritans. We are the pure race of Jews. We have one father, and that's God. Again, in their mind, they're thinking only physically. How many times have we seen this in John's gospel? Jesus gives them spiritual truth, and they go right back to physical things. That's all they're thinking about, their paternal connection to Abraham. Sadly, they're utterly blind to the truth. Now, can we learn anything from this? I think we can. Let me explain. We too, living today as Christians in the church, can be misled into thinking that we are heirs of eternal life based on a false criteria of what puts a person in good standing before God. We can be deceived in this area. So we all, this is one of those times, hey, check your heart. What is my basis 
for assurance of salvation? Am I relying on some false criteria that I've created that makes me believe that I have a right standing before God? Have you ever asked somebody to, to share something about their testimony? You say, hey, tell me how you, how you met Jesus. How did, how did God save you? And they respond by saying, oh, I've always, I've always believed. What does that even mean? So I want you to do me a favor. If, if anybody ever responds that way, oh, I've always believed. I want you to just give them one or two follow-up questions and do it out of love, not out of judgment, right? But because you care for their eternal soul. Because folks who say that usually mean something like this. They mean something like, well, there's a long history of faith in my family. Or they might mean, I was raised in the church. I was always there. Have you heard this? Every time the door was open, I was in the church. Or I grew up going to Sunday school, and I was in Awana for crying out loud. Right? Or my dad was a pastor or a deacon in the church. Or they could be saying something like, well, I've always felt really strongly about God. Or I've always been a really spiritual person. Or I've always known that God was with me. And if, though, if that's actually true, those are all really good things. But can you see how those statements can be analogous to these Jews claiming Abraham as their automatic pass into heaven? Well, this is my background. This is my, this is my physical family, so I'm in. I'm good. We have to be really careful here. Those things I just mentioned can serve as a great platform for hearing the gospel, but not one of those things will save you. Not one of them. So don't get me wrong, it's a great blessing to be born into a Christian home, right? To be raised in the church, we encourage that each and every day. But know this as well, with great privilege comes great responsibility. That blessing of being around the gospel increases your accountability to respond to the light that you've been given. And frankly, it only increases your culpability on the judgment day if you hear it over and over and over again and don't respond in repentance and faith in the one who you keep hearing about. So with great privilege comes great responsibility. Remember how Paul did this, how he boasted in his Jewish background as well. Do you remember the list he gives of all of his credentials? He's a Jew among all Jews, right? There's no way you can argue with Paul's credentials. But then he finds out that none of his exemplary Jewishness could take away his sin and make him right before God. And once he's saved, he then counts all of those things as what? As loss. His ethnic status, his upbringing, his training, all of his credentials, he says, it's all garbage compared to knowing Christ. He counts it all as loss. And later he's going to write to the Galatian churches, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That's quite a reversal for someone like Paul, for a man who, thought, who was so highly acclaimed as a Jew and so rooted in Judaism. Incredible reversal for him to go from one to the other. And the reason is Christ. Amen? So we've discovered that these Jews in our text are not true believers. The belief we saw in verse 30 was a, an acknowledgement that his teaching might be true, that they were persuaded by his arguments, but this is not true saving belief. And now Jesus has pointed out, not only are you not believers in me, but you're not even sons of Abraham. But still, they're sons of somebody. Because we talked about this earlier, paternity, there are, there's only two choices. They're sons of somebody, and that's what we're about to find out. Notice how Jesus makes it very clear in this passage, some very clear claims about his paternity. There's a contrast here. Verse 40, he says, I've told you the truth, 
the truth which I heard from, from God, from my Father. Verse 42, I proceeded forth and have come from God, my Father. I've not even come on my own initiative, but he, my Father, sent me. Those are just two of many statements. We've seen this over and over again, how Jesus consistently, as he's talking to these Jews, he talks constantly about this unique son relationship that he has with his father. And the fact is, spiritual sonship is revealed in two things, likeness and conduct. Think about this. Spiritual sonship, apply this to yourself, is reflected in likeness and conduct. Does the son reflect in his character what his father is truly like? And does the son do what the father instructs him to do? Well, Jesus makes those claims in likeness. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And he repeatedly claims, I speak and do only what the father wills. Jesus makes the paternal claim here of both likeness and conduct with his father. And so in verse 46, he then challenges those in the crowds. Look, if you don't believe me, then bring evidence to show that God is not my father. He says in verse 46, so which one of you convicts me of sin? Silence. Now, those in the crowd that day did think he was a sinner, so much so they thought he deserved death, but thinking something is true is not the same as it being true. And Jesus is very specific in his words. Which of you convicts me of sin? Which one of you has the evidence? Not just, not just your opinion, but the evidence that I'm a sinner. Do you have the two required witnesses that prove that I'm a sinner? If so, stand up and testify. Silence. Nothing. Now, Jesus makes his claim to paternity. Sadly, these Jews have done the same thing. They're physical descendants of Abraham. True, but not sufficient. They're externally devoted to their religion. Also true, also insufficient. So Jesus challenges them in verse 39. If you're Abraham's children, then do the deeds of Abraham. Simple, simple challenge, right? In other words, if that's the standard you claim, then measure yourself by it. How, is your, how does your righteousness compare to Abraham's? And, and Jesus knows, and we know today, that still wouldn't be enough because Abraham was not justified by his works, but by what? By his faith. So in verse 40, Jesus takes aim at the very heart of the matter. Verse 40 says, but as it is, you are seeking to kill me. That's a motive of the heart. You're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth. This Abraham did not do. So his point is clear. You reject the truth that I tell you about God, and you seek to silence me by way of premeditated murder. How is that consistent with Abraham? The schemes and motivations of your heart reveal the truth about what's inside of you. This is a key word, your nature. This is who you are. The motivations of your heart reveal the truth about you and your nature. You are not children of Abraham. You are not children of God. You have a different father altogether. And his desires are your desires. That's the challenge for all of us, right? What are the hidden desires of our hearts? Does it reflect our father? Which father? That's the challenge he gives them. Remember, likeness and conduct. Jesus challenges them. And then the gloves come off here in verse 41. You are doing the deeds of your father. And then just a few moments later, he clarifies what he's talking about. The reference is, verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Did the Jews understand that? 
Absolutely. They knew exactly what he was claiming. Okay, so we're going to do a very quick excursus on Diabolos. Where's that? Grant, I need, I need a song, man. I need like that ominous music. Diabolos. The devil, right? What is Jesus? Who is Jesus talking about here? There's quite a bit of confusion in the church about the devil. Quite a bit of primarily because so many names are attached to him in scripture and so many images as well. And so we have a tendency now to shy away from talking about him because our culture has done a really good number on us in this regard. Our culture's done a very good job of minimizing his role in the biblical narrative, primarily by, by doing one of two things. First of all, by trying to say he doesn't exist. He's a figment of your imagination. That's number one. And number two, if that doesn't work, by mocking his image by saying, oh, you believe in the guy with the little red suit and the, the horns and the, you know, the, the tail and the pitchfork. They've mocked him to the point where now in our culture, if you talk about the devil, you're anti-intellectual. You believe in things like myth and folklore. They've done a number on us. So this is one of the many things that we need to recapture in our conversations about what the Bible teaches. And yet the biblical authors don't shy away from describing him. Not because he's, this is important, not because he has any sovereign power in and of himself or that he's somehow an equal and opposing you know, power to God. That is not true. I know the world likes to see things in those dualistic terms like there's two equal and opposing powers. That is not true. The devil is a created spiritual being who's Influence and power is granted to him by God for divine reasons, things that are beyond us, right, above our pay grade, so to speak. But we understand what, the, what, the, what evil does in our world, how it drives people to Christ. There's, a, there's a, been a ton of work done on that. If you, ever, if you ever struggle with what we call theodicy, the problem of evil, or why does God allow the devil to do his work, there are great answers. There are books we can point you to. We can sit down over coffee and talk about it. But just know that the devil is given this power by God for his reasons, and we have to remember that. But note here, Jesus says that this being, this devil, has a real influence over people. He is a spiritual father to many, to most. He is a spiritual father. And that means it's important for us to be aware of him. So his story goes back to the very beginning, right? To the very beginning, back to creation. Among the angelic council in heaven, God declares that human beings under his kingly rule would be stewards over this perfect creation. But there is one being who dissents to that plan. He doesn't like the plan. He desires to be like God, to be an Elohim with real power, the one calling the shots. And so the first step in his plan of rebellion is to disrupt God's plan for these new creatures, man and woman, and to cause them to rebel just like he's rebelling. So this devil, as Jesus calls him, is the very same being known as the Nahash in Genesis chapter 3. In English, it's translated the serpent. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the serpent, but there's been, I think there's been all kinds of really bad work done on what we should picture when we think about Eve coming face to face with this Nahash. Do you think about the little garter snake in your yard? I mean, some people do, or, or some people think about, how many of you guys think of Jungle Book? <laughs> Ka, right, the talking snake, the python who slithers down the tree. A lot of us think these types of things. Well, I would make the case here that the Nakash who appeared to Eve was likely a serpentine angel that she was already familiar with. 
a being that she had seen before. Because recall the scene, she doesn't hesitate when he approaches her. She doesn't seem shocked that he can speak. There seems to be some familiarity there. She's not surprised by it. Consider a couple of other interesting facts that I think support the idea that this is not just a snake, but this is a, this is a serpentine angel. Number one, according to Isaiah 6, God's very throne room is flanked by angelic beings known as seraphs. Now, the translation of seraphs has been debated for centuries, but our best understanding is, is that they are fiery serpents. They're fiery serpents. They are dragon-like angels with wings and limbs and the ability to speak. Seraphs. Second, we know that angelic beings were present there in the garden. At the end of the account of the fall in Genesis 3, we're told that God stations cherubim in the center of the garden to guard the path to the tree of life. So the idea that there were angel, angelic beings in the garden makes sense. And third, we know that this serpent cannot be a simple animal because remember, in the previous chapter, Adam is portrayed as being greater than the animals. He's given authority to rule over them. He's given the privilege of naming them. But then this serpent comes along, and the picture there looks very different. The serpent assumes a clearly superior role over Eve. He functions as her teacher, as a, as a, as a uh, one who passes along divine information, as false as it turns out to be. He's passing along information to her, and she submits to it. So there's interesting data in here for us to see the devil in the way we should see him. Now, beyond Genesis 3, the devil rears his ugly head at a number of important moments in the biblical story. You know that. But we know he's going to play a very prominent role at the end of days. The description of him in the book of Revelation is as what? A dragon. Not a garter snake. A dragon, right? Similar to the picture of the serpent in the garden. In fact, John connects him to that very image. Look at Revelation 12. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil. So these connection points happen throughout, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Now, here's why we're talking about this. In today's passage in John 8, Jesus, who remember is the Son of God, He's existed for all of eternity, He has existed in the heavenly realms, He has seen everything there is to see. Here in this story, He cracks open just a sliver the door to let us see into the spiritual realm that exists all around us. Something about this devil. It's outside of our view, but he says this exists all around us, and there is this creature, this devil, who is a very true and powerful spiritual father. Be aware of him. And listen, I'm convinced that you and I will never fully understand life on this planet until we accept the fact that there are these invisible realities in our world, even though we can't see it, both good and bad. They're operating in our world. In Ephesians 6, Paul speaks of it, right? He calls them rulers and powers and spiritual forces, and he groups them all under the schemes of diabolos, the devil. And again, we have to realize that the devil is a spiritual father to many. In fact, as I said earlier, for a time, he is the spiritual father to every person born into this world. Why? Because of the fall. Because we're all born into this world as children of Adam, 
corrupted in our very nature. And so the curse that came about because of the fall produced two distinct families, right? Genesis 3.15 calls it a battle of seed, S-E-E-D, seed. The seed of the woman represented by Christ and his spiritual family and the seed of the serpent represented by all those who will follow their father, the devil, who in every turn opposes the kingdom of God. So we have the children of, of the devil and we have the children of God. Two spiritual families with two spiritual fathers. And the tension between these two families has been going on from that first day in the garden to the time of Christ and right up to September 2021. That tension and that battle goes on. Listen to how John makes this distinction very clear in his first epistle. Listen listen to how clear John makes this. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he's born of God, meaning he cannot sin in a habitual way. He cannot live a lifestyle of sin because why? He's born of God. He's been reborn. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious, John writes, obvious, Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother, his family. One who does not operate within the bounds of family and love his brother or sister. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Love the family. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brother's deeds were righteous. I mean, talk about dark and light, right? He draws this incredible contrast in this passage. And he points to Cain. Cain becomes the archetype of all who belong to the serpent. He is, he is the, the, the ultimate seed of the Nachash. And then Jesus, interestingly, the Son of God, when he walks the earth, he adds to me, adds another archetype on top of Cain. Do you remember, what does he call the scribes and the Pharisees? Serpents. Serpents and a brood of vipers. So we have these archetypes to to help us understand there's this very distinct difference between darkness and light. Now, back to our passage in John 8. Look how Jesus now expands in verse 44 on the nature of the serpent. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Obviously, that's a reference back to Genesis 3, right? Obviously. By tempting Eve, the serpent took the life of Adam and Eve in a spiritual sense. They they died spiritually that day. And the result was death to the entire human race. It was, in every sense of the word, a premeditated murder. And of course, the tool that he used to commit that murder was a lie. It was deception. He's the father of lies because, listen, that is his very nature. That word in Scripture is powerful. Nature is who you are within. It's not what you you can fake to do on the outside. It's who you are at your core. The nature of, of the devil is a liar. Whenever he speaks, he speaks lies. But here's the thing you have to always be aware of. As he prowls around, and the scripture tells us that he prowls, he presents himself as what? An angel of light. That's how 
clever he is, how crafty he is. He presents this way to deceive and to lure. And so his temptations will always come with just enough truth to make it appear to be light. Paul says you've got to be aware of the devil's schemes. You can't just float through life saying, I'm not going to deal with this. You've got to be aware of these things. But the ultimate truth about the devil never changes. His goal is always to do three things, to steal, kill, and destroy, the Bible says. Steal, kill, and destroy. And here in our text, we see the deception that the devil has sowed among the religious authorities of Israel. The deception that he has sowed among the people of, of, of Israel is spiritual blindness. And he's used their own pride over their ancestry to blind them, to cause them to be unable to see or hear the truth about God, even though their own Messiah is standing right before them. With words coming from his lips about his father, they still cannot see it. The enemy has sowed great lies in their hearts. And even in that distressing truth, look how Jesus explains the why behind it. Twice he does this. Look at verse 43. He tells us why they can't hear. He says, why do, you, why do you not understand what I'm saying? Because you cannot hear my word. Verse 47, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you're not of God. Notice he doesn't say, you do not hear my word. He says, you cannot hear my word. The Greek word there speaks of an inability, the lack of an ability to hear truth and live it out. It's because they're not born of God, Jesus says. They're not born again. They are the seed of the serpent. That is their nature. And so they're spiritually blind. And consistent with the nature of their spiritual father, they reject the truth. And what do they want to do? Murder Jesus. His word has no place in them. And worse, the truth that he speaks threatens to expose the sinfulness of their hearts. So rather than hearing the truth and repenting of it, their plan is to simply eliminate the messenger. They're the seed of the Nachash. That's who they are. Now, next week we're going to see how they respond to that. And it's not pretty. You know, how would you respond to that? Guy says, you're of your father the devil. They're going to respond and it's going to be ugly. For now, let's talk about some things that we can learn, practically speaking, that come out of this passage. Let me give you four things. Number one is this. When you and I do what Jesus does here, carrying the message of the gospel into this fallen world, guess what's going to happen? We're going to be rejected and possibly even hated. Just like our spiritual father. Likeness and conduct. Why should we expect a different reaction? Are people not children of the devil? They're all around us. How are they, why, why would they respond any differently today than they did back then? This is, this is part of the cross we bear, right? This is part of what we sign up for when we attach ourselves to Christ as Savior and Lord, to suffer to suffer the reproach of the world who hates him. If the world hates you, he said, know that it hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, the world hates you. Now, test yourself. Does the world love you? Are you of this world or are you of Christ? There should be some rub there, some pushback, amen? Peter, who understood what it meant to suffer, says this, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory rests on you. Now that doesn't mean we run out there trying to antagonize everybody and just be a jerk. But as we're sharing truth, 
in love with both grace and truth as we're sharing that, why are we surprised when we get blowback? And as the world continues to go in the direction it's going, do you not realize it's going to get worse? Don't be naive. It's going to. So that's number one. Expect that reaction. Number two is this. Unlike those who belong to the serpent, you've been given the ability, and I use that word intentionally, because it's, remember the, the, the Jewish men in that temple court, they were unable. But you, if you're a believer, you've been given the ability to hear truth. So for crying out loud, listen. Listen. When you're sitting under the teaching of God's word, when you're hearing exhortation from a fellow believer, whatever the setting might be, here in church on Sunday morning, in your community group, in discipleship, whatever it is, are you actually listening? Or are you checking a box? I was in church. I went to C group. Are you listening? There's a diff- hearing and listening are different, aren't they? Hearing is a passive intake of sound. Some of you right now, my, you're just like, whatever, Jeff. I, I, I'm actually not offended. I get it. I, I've been in many churches. Whew, this is tough, man. You've got to be intentional to listen. You've got to be intentional if you want to listen. I'm sure you've wondered. You've known people. We've all known people. They've been sitting in churches for 20 or 30 years, and you see no change in their life. You know who I'm talking about. Don't, no names. They just, 30 years later, they appear to be the same people they were decades ago, same struggles, same sins, same difficult personalities, same conflicts, just no fruit in their lives. There's only two possibilities there. They're not born again, so they cannot hear, or they're born again, they're just not listening. They're just not intentionally listening for the purpose of life transformation. They're, they're, they cut off the work of the Spirit. Their heart's not open to the work of the Spirit in them. So if you're born of God, you're able to hear the truth, you have to be intentional about listening. Every time you, you're in the Word or you hear the Word preached, listening in such a way that you're open to conviction, that you're open to the possibility that you need to repent in one way or the other, and open to the idea that real change in your character needs to come. Real change in the way you walk through this life needs to happen so that your profession of faith lines up with your life so that it can stand up under that type of scrutiny. Bottom line, you have to place yourself under the authority of Scripture and really listen with the goal of applying. That's number two. Number three, unlike those who belong to the serpent, you have a place for Jesus' word in you. So for crying out loud, study it. I'm going to keep saying that. Unlike those who are of the fa- their father, the devil, who there's no place in, in them for Jesus' word, you have a place for it. So study it. This principle is so obvious, yet still neglected, right? All of us have like three or four Bibles in our homes. There, there is not a, a dearth of, of Bibles in our world. I mean, there are places around the world, they would, they would do anything to have the types of resources that we have here in America when it comes to God's Word. And by the way, we're part of a church where the Word is taught relentlessly. In every, play, every possible chance we can do it, every week we teach it relentlessly. And yet, like so many other things which we have in abundance, we take it for granted, don't we? 
Everything that we have in abundance as Westerners, as Americans, we take for granted. And sometimes just plain out ignore it. Study it. It's there. You've got the resources, right? How often I've heard people say, if only I could grow in the Lord. If only I could get victory over this or that. If only I could, I, uh, my, my life wasn't so filled with conflict. If, if only my marriage were better. Does the word not a, I should ask Adam, our, our biblical counseling guy, does the word have principles for those things? It does. So how's your study going? Are you just, are you just, is it just a matter of complaining that, I'm not, uh, that these things aren't happening? Or how is your study going? In the word. Obvious, right? But we need reminders. Last thing, number four. And I promise I'll get out of your hair. Are you listening, by the way? Good. Fourth and final point. Unlike those who belong to the serpent, you have the spirit to help you live out the truth. So for crying out loud, (laughs) do it. (laughs) Do it. You have all the power that you you could want or need to obey God's word. It brings us back to what we talked about last Sunday. Are you, who's your spiritual father? Are you doing the deeds of your spiritual father? Am I just a hearer or am I a doer? Am I a listener and a doer? Or is there a glaring difference between what I profess to believe and how I live? So Jesus is just pointing out a very obvious principle here that your conduct will be a product of your nature. It just has to, it has to be that way because, listen, people can fake it for so long. They can do certain things that make it look like they're, they're really this when they're that. But in the long run, it will show itself. Good trees produce good fruit and bad trees produce bad fruit. Over time, that will come, that will come out. You can't fake it. It's about what your nature is. Children of God will produce the righteous fruits of God's spirit and the children of the devil will produce the unrighteous fruits of a sinful life. So make your profession of faith true. The spirit is there to help you. Just do it. I hate to say that. That's terrible. Just do it. All right. My hope this morning with every fiber of my being is that your spiritual father is God. And that every person in this room is my family. I, and I, again, the tr- in the truest sense, I mean that, that you are my brother or my sister. Paul tells us this, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. All those who are Christians, the true disciples of Jesus, those who continue and abide in his word, we possess right now and forevermore the sweet loving kindness of a father. It, it, it no longer even matters who your earthly father is or was. We have the sweet loving kindness of our spiritual father. It is a welcoming, reassuring, peace-giving, comforting type of love that comes with being family. Adopted by grace. And so John says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. I pray that's true of every person in here this morning. We you bow your heads? I want you to take just a few minutes of quiet time to process that. I just give you a lot to process through, but just take a few moments and, and talk to God.
about whatever the Spirit has brought up in your heart this morning. If you were listening, I'm sure the Spirit brought some things up. Talk to God for a few minutes on your own.